At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn? And when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm gonna choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Steve Hoffman, or Captain Hoff as he's known in Silicon Valley, is the CEO and chairman of Founders Space, which is one of the world's leading incubators and accelerators. He's also an angel investor, serial entrepreneur, and author of the absolutely extraordinary book, Make Elephants Fly. Steve's career began in Hollywood, and he's produced hundreds of TV shows. He went on to be a pioneer in the interactive TV space with his venture-funded startup, Spider Dance, and has since founded several other companies in the gaming and entertainment space. He's now on a mission to educate and accelerate entrepreneurs on their own journey. And as you'll see in our conversation, you will hear his passion as we talk. And I gotta say, his book absolutely blew me away. And I think for anyone who's starting as an entrepreneur, it's a must read. We cover a wide range of topics, including this fascinating look into the brain tech of the future. Why throughout history, we've actually forgotten so many innovations. And why so many people who we would consider legendary inventors actually died broke. This has to be one of my favorite talks. So let's jump straight in to the conversation. Stephen Hoffman, welcome to Inside Out. It's wonderful to be here. I am thrilled. As I was just telling you before we got started, your book absolutely floored me with the amount of insights and true, just value-packed content. And I told you this already, it's literally the best business book that I've ever read. And I don't say that lightly. And I've read a lot of great business books, but as a new founder, perhaps it's close to home because I just started, I launched my business last week, but you, my friend, have provided so much value in that book that I'm going to be singing from the mountaintops that everyone who starts a business should read it and understand it and embrace it. So I first just got to say, thank you. Thank you. That's so nice of you to say, you know, when I write a book, I read a lot of books. So first of all, like you, I read a lot and I read 
uh, literally one or two books every week. So that's how fanatical I am. And especially when I read business books, I don't want a book that has like one great insight and then they keep repeating it in different ways. I want a book that when I read a book where I get lots of information, where it's packed with useful information. So when I write, I take special care to try to do that. It shows. It absolutely shows. And I have so many notes from the book and so many topics that I want to explore. Before we get into that, I kind of think of this conversation as having three parts. We'll call it the past, the future, and then the present. So before we get into any of those, one thing I have to say is, as an avid reader like you, I especially appreciate that you also listen to books. And sometimes you can do multiple things while you're doing it, right? So you could walk, you could work out. That's the thing I love. And like you, which I've done a little bit of homework, I also know that you can speed up how fast we listen to books, downloading information very, very fast. Sometimes you need to go back. For your book, I had to go back. Okay, I got to listen to that again. I got to listen to that again. In a minute, we're going to talk about how our brain can be upgraded. Even though we can download books and this information very quickly, there's going to be new, and there already is, technology that's being, frankly, used on animals today that will allow us to truly have a mind upgrade. But let's put that on hold. As much as I want to get into that, let's talk about your past because you're a creative spirit. You have always been a creative person from what I can tell. I mean, obviously the fact that you wanted to get into film and like me, I went to film school. I went to Loyola. You're SC guy. I'll forgive you for that. Even though I'm, <laughs> I, I'm a Bruin. I didn't go to UCLA, but I, uh, I grew up a Bruin fan because of my father. I'm married to a Trojan. And so there's a, a battle within our house, but from the interactive TV to video games, to trying to land a job at Disney and ultimately taking a job as a script reader because you couldn't find anything else at the time, you set off to be a creative, but your father went to MIT and wanted you to get this, another type of a degree. And you got that, you started with the computer engineering degree. Talk about your childhood and where this creative side came from. That's great. So when I grew up, my father was literally a rocket scientist at MIT, coming out of MIT, trained the early astronauts, did all of that, really pushed science and engineering. Like he saw in the early days, the very early days, you know, that computers were going to take over the world and take over everything. And one of his pieces of advice to me was when you study computers, don't study the hardware, because for every person who designs hardware, there will be a thousand people who have to build software for it. So do the software. He saw these things way ahead of other people. So he was really a big influence on my life. So I had that side, which explains my whole passion for technology and everything I'm doing now with startups and innovation. But then my mother was an artist. So grew up in a house where she was painting all the time, where she would take me out to do art projects every weekend. You know, I was doing a clay and then I started to do my own art projects. I started to write my own fictional stories. I started to create animated movies. Then I started to create movies with all my friends as actors. And, and so I had these dueling sides to me. When I applied to college, both my parents said, my mom and my dad, if you don't want to starve, go into engineering, computers. You know? <laughs> I listened to them because they're smart. And I, in my undergrad, I studied electrical computer engineering. 
when I was doing that, I was like, this is only half of me. Like it's, it's not completing who I am. So I had a bunch of job offers when I graduated, I turned them all down. And then I chose to go to grad school in film and television at USC. So I wanted to follow my dream and I did that. I got out of grad school. You know, you go to a grad school and you think you're going to get a job, but when it's in the movie industry, that's not the case. <laughs> they, they don't just, they're not lining up to hire you. Like for engineering, I had a lot of job offers. My parents were right, you know, but when I graduated film and television, I had no job offers. Like, so I literally had to contacted the Hollywood directory, which is a list of all the executives in Hollywood. I wrote 150 letters to, you know, all the executives and I only got three responses. Only three. So it was crazy. Um, the first one I was, you wouldn't believe this, but the producer of Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars, called me up on the phone. Wow. And the first thing out of his mouth is, I don't have a job for you, but <laughs> I really loved your letter and I just want to talk. So that's cool. We had a great conversation and it was really, you know, it was a great experience to have him just call me up out of the blue. The second was Disney. I go into Disney and the interview is going great. I was in the head of their production group and they're going to bring me on and all this stuff. And then they asked me a trick question. Mm. They asked me, do you watch Disney films? <laughs> and being honest in those days, you know, Disney films were mostly kids films and I just wasn't that into them. So mm. I I was honest. I said, no. And then I started to list off all the great directors like Francis Ford Coppola and all these directors sure, that, I, sure, sure. that I really love. And I saw the face of the head of production just drop. And I knew instantly I was out. <laughs> I lost that job. And then the third company that called me up was this guy, Chuck Freeze, and he had this huge building on, on Hollywood Boulevard that was mm -hmm. right across from the Mann Theater. And uh, basically, we, I knew, I didn't watch TV at all because I was kind of a film snob in those days. And it wasn't like today where we have really great TV. The TV wasn't like that. You're right. Different time. It was a different time. They didn't have HBO and Netflix and all that stuff. But he called me in and I basically said, yeah, I'll do the job. And I got that job. And the next thing I knew, I was on Hollywood Boulevard being a TV development executive. Wow. What a great story. And kudos for you for being honest, right? I mean, you having left film school, I'm sure you studied the greats. And then here you are being asked, are you a Disney fan? And nothing against Disney, but to your point at the time, most of their content was catered to children. And I, it's a totally different time. Obviously TV was very different because all of that's been really recent. So flash forward to now you have obviously have your career behind you and looking at all the different things that you've done, you've blended your passion for the creative arts and being that type of thinker, but also with the technology on that front, thinking of technology, let's transition to the future. And I am deeply fascinated by what the world will look like in a hundred or 200 years, because if you really think about it, the way we live today, if somebody from 100 or 200 years ago looked at our society today, their minds would be blown. They wouldn't even believe that we have these digital devices that we could talk to somebody in Japan, which I want to talk about Japan too, because I'm a huge Japan lover, but we could do that. But in the future, we could do even more. So 
perhaps you could share a little bit of what you think we will be able to do from a mind upgrade perspective, knowing what's already taking place, helping monkeys in paralysis and helping rats eat food. Those sorts of things fascinate me. Okay. Let me start by saying I have been doing an extensive amount of research on this, not to mention my life where I just travel the globe up until COVID-19. Right, I would right, travel, right, right. I'd spend all my time traveling around the world, meeting with top scientists and entrepreneurs and investors, trying to figure out what this future will be like. So, you know, I have three books and Make Elephants Fly was the first one that you read that's out right now. And then my second book, Surviving a Startup, is all about how to be a great entrepreneur and actually how to survive. Like, you know, it's a book that goes into the blood, sweat and tears of being an entrepreneur. Like, what advice do you need to actually make it? And that is actually just went on presale on Amazon. And then to bring us to this topic, my new book, which will be coming out the summer of 2021, is, is called The Five Forces That Change Everything. And these in the five forces, one of them is when we will be able to hook our brains, right, our, our minds directly into the internet. So that will be the enormous leap forward for humankind. Because literally right now, you know, we're using our fingers and thumbs as the input, it's very slow and cumbersome. So sure. you can imagine people like Elon Musk are working on this, Facebook's working on this, Google's working on this, you know, big companies all around the world and lots of entrepreneurs that I know are working on what's the interface that we design where our thoughts can be transmitted into the internet and eventually two-way transmission, upload and download. And literally the internet, all the processing power in the clouds becomes an extension of our brains. What will that mean for us? Well, first of all, you mentioned like the monkeys. So I've done a lot of research on what we're doing actually today that's working. And people don't even realize this, but we already have done several experiments. At Duke University, there's Dr. Nicolelis. He's one of the leaders in brain computer interfaces. And basically he's run a number of experiments. So. He has taken a monkey and they put a, a devices, uh, they've actually cut open its skull and put a chip into its brain so that it could just by thinking, and it learned this very quickly uh, and intuitively, control a robotic arm to feed itself. So it couldn't feed itself. It was kind of arms were in a little box. So it had to use the robotic arm and it wants food, you know, this monkey. Sure. So very quickly, it learned how to you know, control this and actually reach out, grab something and feed itself and do all sorts of other things with the robotic arm. Then they put the same monkey in a wheelchair. And just by thinking, the monkey could learn to drive the wheelchair. Now, if you could think of, if they could do this with a monkey, I guarantee you they could do this with a human. So you could have your brain hooked up to robotic arms and control them. You can literally drive your car or a wheelchair or and, and control other devices with your brain, with a brain chip, that is possible today. Now, even more amazing than this, that's pretty amazing, right? We're, we'd be like- Incredible. It's incredible, and we can do this. We can do this now if we're willing to get a brain chip. But even more amazing is they have taken, he did an experiment with two rats. Each of these rats had a chip in their brain, and they were each hooked up to the internet. 
Now, these rats were in different cities, different locations. Now, one rat got signals like a flashing light when food was available. The mm -hmm. other rat did not. So the one rat could figure out how to get the food. The other rat could not. However, when their brains were connected by the Internet, the other rat who did not have access to the signals suddenly gained the ability to figure out when and how to get the food. Okay. Now, think about this. What does that mean? That means they transmitted thoughts from one living brain directly to another living brain. If they can do this again in rats, we can do this in humans. We can literally take our thoughts and transmit them to other people. It is possible. We know we can do this. So will it happen? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's already happening. They actually now at Brown University, one of the leading scientists there actually is doing this with humans. You say, what? <laughs> you know, who's going to get a chip in their brain? Well, these people have what's called locked in syndrome. That means they are completely paralyzed. All they can do is like blink their eyes. So their quality of life has is really degraded and they are sitting there. They can't move around. They can't function normally. But with a robotic arm, now they can feed themselves. They can drive a wheelchair around. They can even text to one another just wow. by thinking. So this uh, but they have to get brain chips. They're willing to do it. Will the general public be willing to do it? Well, we will see because Elon Musk is and others. There are many other people working on it. He's just taking science that a lot has been already developed by these amazing professors at different universities. What a lot of innovators do, by the way, right? What, they, what they, innovators they're are supposed to do, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, they can't spend 30 years developing this technology. They want to take it and apply it to real world problems. What they want to do is make inserting a brain chip as painless and non-invasive as possible. So that's one option. Then the other option, which Facebook is working on right now and many other companies I know are working on, big companies and a lot of small ones, is can we have a non-invasive, meaning they don't have to cut a hole in your brain, they don't have to stick something in your artery or something like that. Basically, you just put on a headband and they have these. One of the people writing the foreword for my book is Steve Mann. He is the godfather of wearables and he founded a company uh, that makes the Muse headband, a brain-computer yeah. interface that you can literally buy on Amazon and test it out. And it's not as powerful as what I described when you have a chip in your brain, but sure. it's the first step in that direction. All of this technology is coming now. It's You can even buy some, and it's only like a couple hundred dollars like for uh, one of these headbands. And then you can start to play around with it and sort of see what is coming in the future and how our lives will be transformed. Well, the immediate use case that comes to mind is if I'm paralyzed and the only way for me to not be paralyzed is to implant something in my brain, I'm going to do it. Now, if I'm not paralyzed, I may be resistant, but here's the interesting part. There won't, there will be some people who don't have inhibition. They're going to do it. And the proof will soon become a reality as they start downloading information, as they start using this, and as they start becoming, frankly, superhumans, other humans are going to want to do the same thing. And with the advent of non-invasive technology, then it becomes a moot point because then it's just a, a simple, you just pop this thing on your head or whatever it ends up being. The other thing that I've learned from you through some of your talks is this idea, and this ties back into the, 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 the rat scenario or the mice or whatever it was, 
is this idea of transferring memories. And that, like, I think about Total Recall, the movie, and I'm like, this is real. Like, you could actually implant somebody's experiences and somebody's lives into somebody else, else's heads. Talk a little bit about that phenomenon of this whole craziness, unbelievable so, craziness. That is a little further out there, but that's when we can actually write to the brain. And when we can write to the brain, uh, we can not only send in instructions, like if you know, you're know you lost, it could tell you where to go. The US military, DARPA, is actually putting a lot of money into this. They have a whole program set up for non-evasive two-way communication. They're calling it the smart helmet program, right? So soldiers who wear these smart helmets, you're on a battlefield, you could imagine, you know, there's drones flying over, there's robots running around. These are the future of warfare. And all of them are gathering information. It's being coordinated in the cloud by an AI. And the AI is literally directing every soldier on the battlefield. And it's saying, you know, the enemy is right there behind that wall. You don't, we know it. So now what you need to do not to get killed and to actually get at the enemy. And so this is what's coming. When you can write to the brain, one is giving instructions like that. But even more, everything in your brain is information. Let's put it that way, right? All the sensations that you feel, all your five senses, your sight, all of these are just signals coming into your brain. If you think about it, your brain is a black box, right? It doesn't know anything about the outside world except what it receives through these sensors. So these Mm -hmm. sensors are ears, our eyes, our skin with all the nerve cells in them. So what we will be able to do is we will actually be able to create, put images right into your brain. We'll be able to put sound right into your brain by literally mimicking these inputs right through our brain computer interface. We will be able to put sensations on your skin. So we will be able to create a whole alternate reality in your mind without you being there, all generated by computers and output. Output is just signals too, right? So once we can capture these signals, like your memories from the past as you experience them, or your emotions, like your emotional you know, triggers, mm-hmm. we might be able to simulate those and actually send them to other people. So you could not only experience artificial ones, but you could actually experience what maybe your grandmother, you hook up to your grandmother with a brain computer interface, and then you start to receive her memories as she recalls things, you can actually, and you could even potentially, you know, this is all potentially, right? Theoretically, because we haven't done it yet. You could even theoretically feel her emotions. Mm-hmm. So you imagine, you know, in the future, two people going out, uh, they, are, they are dating, and one of them says, do you love me? <laughs> and the other says, yes. And then, can I see, can I feel it? Can I right. feel your love? Uh, oh my God. You know, what, wow. would, what would that be like, right? That's it, could amazing. Be, it could be bliss, but it could also break up a lot of relationships. <laughs> it's, oh, I know. Right. I know you're just saying you love me and you don't. Um, yeah. So, but that's just one crazy example. There, if you start to uh, play out all the different scenarios in our life, it would be like emotion, you could literally be downloading emotions like we download music, you know? Mm-hmm. It, what would that mean? Like sadness and happiness. You could be hooked up to your significant other and always exchanging emotions. You, It gets scary too. It's not just happy, happy, happy. Sure, sure, sure. If you can download other people's memories, if they can go into your memory and overwrite memories, they could literally reprogram you. This is an area 
uh, you know, it's imagine somebody when they ha- and when they steal your identity today. Literally, they're stealing your social security number, maybe some bank information, your name and address. But when they, if they steal your identity in the in the era of advanced two way brain computer interface, they are stealing you. <laughs> that's, oh, literally, that's, could, that's scary. Because they have done experiments again in the laboratory where uh, they have had a rat. They literally had a brain. Co- computer interface on it, a chip in its brain, and they controlled the rat. They made it do stuff. They guided it around, made it turn left, turn right, do this, do that. And what they found out in doing this experiment is the rat didn't even realize it was being controlled. It Mm. thought that the thing coming into its brain was itself. So Mm. you might not even know you're being controlled. You wouldn't even know because if we can't remember something and we have a new memory, that memory is real to us. It's not only how great this is if you listen to somebody like Elon Musk, but you have to remember this, like all technology, it can be abused. We are going to really have to think carefully before allowing people access to our brains. And especially in two-way communication like this, what does it mean? Can it be hacked by nefarious sources? Do we even trust a company like Facebook, for example, with access to our minds, right? Is this something where society wants to go? So the powers will be, like you said, you could become superhuman. You could become amazingly capable. You can experience the world in entirely new ways, right? But there may be a price to pay. And this is where humanity comes to a critical decision. You know, I write a lot about this because I really believe that this decision is coming up quickly. And we've already seen with current technology, which is fairly benign compared to this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah social networks, what a huge impact they can have on society. So you can imagine the impact of this on society. What's the timetable? I mean, what are we looking at here in number of years for some of these things to become a reality for humans? So as I said, with brain computer interfaces, they're reality now. Like with people with locked in syndrome who have these chips in their brain, they're not doing everything I said, not the advanced emotion and stuff, but they are able to control things with their brains directly and transmit information. Will uh, When will this be a, a reality for the majority of people? Will, yeah. You know, putting a date on things is really hard. But I will tell you, there'll be. I would be surprised if in the next 10 years, we don't have brain-computer interfaces that we can wear uh, uh, that add significant value to our life. Mm-hmm. So... Now, they won't be what I just described, right? That's that's probably 20, 30 years out. But I'll tell you, you know, in our lifetimes, we're going to see this. Like this decision is our decision. Our generation wow. of human beings are going to be making this decision. And that's why it's so critical we start the dialogue now, like we're having, like that people start to think about this. That's right. It has to be part of the conversation. And this is... What's happened throughout history, which, you know, we're going to go back before we go to present. And when we look back in time and we look at innovation, for example, technologies and innovation, they're they're really the key to our survival in a lot of ways, whether that be climate change or any number of things that we have to look for solutions. They're going to come out of innovation and creative thinking. One of the things you highlight in your book, which I was fascinated by, and frankly, which I didn't even know, is you say that innovation happens in fits and starts. We've had things invented in the past that we forgot about. And then we think today, oh no, this was invented at this time. But in reality, no, this was, this was thought of 
hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. So can you, I mean, Adam, can you give a few examples of those historical sure. things that we think we know when they were invented, but in reality, they were, they were, they were thought of a long time ago. Yeah. So yeah. And make elephants fly. I, I wanted to go back in my book and really examine innovation throughout history. So that's just one piece of it. And what I discovered is that a lot of knowledge is lost, right? Like we actually uh, innovate, but society doesn't go in a straight line. Like we don't go uh, from A to B. It's zigzag back and forth, you know, just like our lives, right? Our mm-hmm. lives are never a straight <laughs> exactly. line. Exactly. Yeah, we yeah, think yeah. we're on a trail and then we take another turn and blah, 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 right. and we find it wherever we are. So in the Ptolemaic society, which was in Egypt, and that was uh, when the Egyptians, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. He formed the, the Ptolemies were the dynasty of Greeks that ruled Egypt. They were very open and forward thinking. They had the Library of Alexandria, which is what's the greatest library in history, where they gathered all this information. And thinkers around that time, the Greeks and the, and the Ptolemaics, and they had actually figured out that the world was made of tiny invisible particles, which mm-hmm. today we call atoms, right? They had figured that out. They had actually said, their philosophers had actually said, oh, this is the only, it was a whole theory of philosophy. This is the only rational way that the world could be put together was these tiny invisible particles that form everything, all these atoms. But that information, that knowledge was was subsequently lost, it vanished. And then there were many other, they had actually figured out that the earth was round. <laughs> they had yeah. actually figured out navigation. They could read the stars and all of these things that Europe came the church took over and it suppressed a lot of this, right? Because it didn't agree with biblical teaching. So a lot of this knowledge was literally suppressed for hundreds of years. And then it came back, you know, in the enlightenment and the Renaissance and totally changed everything, you know, our whole understanding of the world. So that's one idea. There's also the idea that a lot of technologies take a long time to actually even uh, become useful. So even when we have them, we can't see the full potential. Mm-hmm. So think about it. Most technological inventions, from the time they're invented to the time they actually impact society in a significant way, is two decades, 20 years or more. And this is true with the transistor. When we first had the transistor, we had this amazing device, but it took a long time before the whole computer revolution took off and actually changed all our lives. You saw it with AI. Like AI was literally, they had advanced algorithms uh, developed in the 1950s. And a lot of the algorithms we're using today in such a big way, like are half a century old or older, you know? The, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they were developed, these deep learning, these neural networks, all the stuff we talk about as cutting edge, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. networks, you know, machine learning. Well, that was, that's old stuff, but it took a long time because one piece of technology alone isn't often enough. You need mm-hmm. society to be ready for it, right? So society has to be ready for those ideas. You also need the infrastructure in place. So you can't just have the AI alone without the computing power, without the network that we have, the internet, without the storage for all the data. The AI alone couldn't do that much because you couldn't access, you couldn't gather massive amounts of data. You know, AI thrives on data. AI is as smart as the data you feed it. 
So before we had the internet, before we had broadband, before we had all you know mass storage devices and, and massive computing power compared to those days, all yeah. these great algorithms were just great algorithms. Then they, they were like academic research. They weren't practical. So mm-hmm. that is you got to keep that in mind when we're talking about these technologies. Yeah, I mean, and then you think about all these inventors, the Teslas of the world, the Gutenberg, Diesel, Armstrong, Goodyear, all of these people, they died in poverty. And I think probably in part because of the phenomenon that you're talking about, I'm certain there's other reasons, but why is it that so many people who we know did incredible things, why did they leave before they could even realize perhaps how important their invention was or at least have the financial success. I, I think there's a few reasons for it, but maybe you could share some of those reasons. Yes. So yeah, and Make Elephants Fly, I write about this too, because I was fascinated. Like, you know, Tesla, he was amazing visionary. Like he actually saw his inventions in his dreams, you know? So dreams are your subconscious processing things. And he actually invented a lot of things that like, alternating current as opposed to DC direct current he invented that in it you know all in the radio he actually the you know radio waves these came out of his dreams so he was he was an amazing person but he died in poverty like really really poor now it wasn't just that he was what you have to understand is there's two things that, that thing just because you're good at inventing something at coming up with these amazingly brilliant insights and ideas doesn't mean that you are good at executing on them, building a business. So there are certain people who can do both, like they're magically blessed. Thomas Edison, for example, he could invent things and he could, he was an amazing promoter, right? He was an amazing entrepreneur. He was actually, Thomas Edison was a better entrepreneur than he was an inventor. A lot of ideas he would just take from other people. Sure. And work with people, yeah, yeah. It's better, but you know, like the light bulb, he did not invent the light bulb. I'm sorry, but what he did was he took the light bulb and he made it work. <laughs> like he actually did invent, he made it better, right? He improved upon the light bulb and got it to a point where it was practical. You know, we're talking about Tesla. Edison and Tesla were rivals. Edison was extremely envious of Tesla because Tesla was so brilliant. But Edison also was a business person. He was pushing DC current. Tesla was saying, no, AC, which is the one we use today for most things, right? AC is the way to go. So they had this huge rivalry. What ended up happening is Edison was fairly good at promoting himself and doing his business. Tesla was just not a good business person. He was like, lousy to put it honestly and he ended up i think selling all his pat most of his patents to like westinghouse which took over and he got nothing from them like they ripped him off big time so they got all the benefits so when you look back at history a lot of inventors are good at precisely that inventing things and they need like if you're an entrepreneur what you want is you want one of those inventors, one of those geniuses on your team, but you don't want them running your business. You want them doing what they're really good at. And this is why I also write about, like, as an entrepreneur, you need to look at what you're really good at and recognize it. Like, most of us aren't people, like, Elon Musk is pretty amazing. He's good at a lot of things. You know, there are certain people who, or Bill Gates, like, those those guys they're a truly amazing because they're not just like technical geniuses and can like absorb all this information. They're good business people. They're excellent promoters. Uh, they know how to get people to do what they want. You know, Steve Jobs, like they're mindful <laughs> and all this stuff. They're really good at all those things. But most of us really peak and we're lucky 
if we are exceptional in one area, we are blessed. So if you figure out which areas you're exceptional in and move yourself into that position and then bring partner with other people who are exceptional at other things, don't try to do what you're not good at. It's just going to impede your progress in life. And a lot of people, because they're really good at one thing, they think they're good at another. You know, it's a mistake a lot of us make. I mean, identifying that is crucial because what you allow yourself to do is thrive in the area that you are great at. And to your point, find the people who can do the things that you are maybe deficient at, or maybe you're not as great at, or maybe you don't like doing. We'll talk about that in a moment because you label some of these things. I don't want to leave Elon off the table. He's my old boss. So I, I don't know if you know my backstory, but I worked at Tesla. So I know I have a, you know, I, I ran onboarding for Tesla globally. And part of that was to create the story and, and talk about, you know, the history of Tesla. And a lot of people don't realize that he didn't start Tesla, right? As, as you mentioned in your book, but what he's masterful at is, finding brilliant people to help make his vision become a reality. And I think history is littered with people, not maybe not littered, but there are many examples of people who like Elon took inventions. Let's just call them inventions for a broad use of the term and helped to make those inventions either through design. Like you look at a guy like Steve jobs or Elon, who was able to create a vehicle that already had the foundation, something to start with, but to create something that was so incredible from a customer experience standpoint, you know, I'm a Tesla, I, I'm, a, I'm a Tesla guy, a Model X. I, I don't have it currently, but I had a Model X for a year and it was the best driving experience that I've ever had. And so these people, and, and this is where we get to present day, these are the people who are seeing the types of success that books are written about, like your book and others. So what is it, do you think, that these type of people, what is their mag- What is their secret sauce? I know it's kind of a broadcast. And what is the secret sauce to somebody like an Elon or other visionaries? How are they able to identify, I'll call it the wave, which you call it the wave before it's a wave, before it's maybe it's a ripple and it's going to become a wave? How do they do that? These people are pretty amazing. They look out on the horizon and Whatever you are talking about the wave, so I'll use that metaphor. What everybody wants to do, what every entrepreneur wants to do is they want they what you need to be looking at is you're you're like a surfer. You're out there waiting to catch that big wave, the big kahuna that will, you know, take your company all the way, you know, and give you that great ride. Because as an entrepreneur, as a startup, you don't have a lot of power, right? You you know, usually it's a small team at the beginning, it's underfunded. You're not gonna get there on your own. You're gonna get there by having a big wave propel you. That's how you become so big so fast. But when do you catch that wave? You know, timing is one thing. If you start paddling too soon, you're going to get ahead of the wave and it's going to crash on you. If you wait too long, the wave is going to move past you. But a lot of entrepreneurs, they look at the waves that have already passed, the ones that are happening right now. And they think that's what I want to, you know, that's where I want to go. And they start paddling. But as a surfer, you know, you can never catch up to that wave. Once it's gone past you, you can never catch up to it. It's gone. So don't be chasing those waves. You need to turn your board around, look out in, in the distance and see on, on the far horizon which waves are coming. What are the big, and those waves are technological changes because especially in our world today, the technology can change everything. So you want to wait to the right timing, the right wave, and start paddling at just the right time. Timing is one thing. So these people are exceptionally good at figuring out the timing 
because they know if they're too early, a startup is too early, boom, like we saw a lot of virtual reality startups. It seemed like a huge wave, right? Virtual reality was, but it was too soon, right? It was a mirage, right? The virtual reality wasn't here yet, wasn't ready for prime time. So all those companies, those VR companies, almost all of them have flamed out and they'll be the next generation. Now, Elon, just like Steve Jobs is really good at this. He didn't invent all that technology, right? A lot of it he took from Xerox Park and other places. But you look at all these entrepreneurs, they don't. And, and then Bill Gates saw what Steve Jobs was doing and took from him sure. the whole Windows operating system. Uh, but they, it's not that they're not inventive. It's just that they're smart at recognizing what they need when they need it at the right time and putting it to use. That is the key. So all of these technologies are out there. You can look right now and the big technologies that are going to change our future are there waiting for you to not only discover them because you may already even know about them, but to figure out how to use them in the right way to solve really critical problems. So the being a visionary, I like to say one of my one of my big insights is that And I learned this not just working with lots of entrepreneurs and being an entrepreneur myself. I did three venture funded companies, but also working with big corporations which have trouble uh, innovating. It's that when you look, the initial idea isn't that important. The initial idea you have is never that important, which really the hard part is not to say, oh, there'll be flying cars in the future. It's not to say, oh, there'll be electric cars in the future. If you think about them, yeah, they will happen at some time. But like you say, when will they happen? And even more important, how will they happen? So mm-hmm. the idea isn't important. What's important is the is the idea is just the starting point of a journey that you are going to go on. What I tell entrepreneurs is that whatever ideas you have right now in your head, don't be fixated on those. Mm-hmm. Because you don't even know if those are the right ideas for the right time. And also they're just ideas in your head. They're, they're visions in your head, but most of the visions in your head and the same with Elon and all these other people don't translate into reality. What you need to figure out is where can this vision take me? Like I'm going to go down this path, but I'm going to keep a totally open mind to changes. Now when you, you know, because you worked at Tesla, when Elon Musk started, it wasn't even his idea, right? It was two entrepreneurs who are kind of mad at him now for taking all the credit. <laughs> you know, they're like, you took all the credit, like you invented Tesla, we did. But he did actually the hard part. I'm not sure if they would even had continued without him, would they, they would even be in business now. We don't know, right? What we do know is that he built Tesla. That's all we know. I can't speak to their abilities, but we do know Elon has proven his. But what he did was he took their idea and then he still had to figure out stuff. Should this car be purely electric? Should it be hybrid? Are there other alternative energy sources? You know, there was no infrastructure for electricity at the, you know, charging stations and all this. But he saw people in the U.S. at least have garages where they can charge things, you know, so there is that infrastructure where they can charge it up. And he started to put together all these pieces and play with it. And it was a journey he went on. I remember in the early days, I went to Adeo Resi, you know, one of Elon's friends, you know, through this big party and they had one of the first Teslas in the room yeah, and yeah, yeah. here in Silicon Valley. I went there and it was like, you know, there was no guarantee at the time because the Tesla was more like this little 
kind of toy sports car sort of thing, the very first model. It wasn't practical, put it that way. It wasn't something that was going to go mass market. It was something that if you were rich, oh, yeah. in Silicon Valley, you might buy as a toy. That's <laughs> so, right. so that's what it was. And um, so he was experimenting, right? He put this first prototype out there, made it super expensive, like 100K or more, and you know, just wanted people to see where it would take him. Great entrepreneurs like all these people, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you name it, Jack Ma of Alibaba, they aren't fixed on an idea. They are going down a path and they are totally open to changing the path anytime, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, they have a vision, but their vision isn't set in stone. Their vision is malleable and it will change according to input of data. This is what separates them. Like this was a, mm -hmm. a visionary that executes with a visionary that's delusional. <laughs> and I meet a lot of them too, you know? Visionaries are delusional. They're fixed on this idea that is totally separate from reality. And they will just keep focusing on that. Visionaries that actually make an impact on the world, they're like, oh, my idea can change a million times and totally change, or, and I can just even throw it out altogether, but it's going to show me the next step I need to take. Mm, well, I think the inventor is so wedded to their idea that it makes it more challenging for them to take their idea and bring it to market and promote it and to think about all the execution versus an innovator and a visionary maybe doesn't have the same level of attachment to it, which frees them up. And what you talk about is you say, better model is to find the key to the treasure chest. I really love that analogy because it's so true, right? I mean, when we think about people like Elon and Steve Jobs and all these people, they didn't do it alone. They found incredibly smart people and they gave them the ability to shine with whatever their superhuman strength is, their power is. A minute ago, we talked about building a team that gives you a well-rounded approach. And you talk about this in the book. So there's two sort of ideas. One is I believe that design is something that you highlight as being absolutely crucial. And you said, you know, if you're going to study anything in school, like that's something that is really, it's almost future-proof, study design. But when we look at like the characteristics, you label them the hustler, the hacker, the hipster, the hotshot, and the politician. So I wonder if you could talk about that diverse group of team members. And sometimes somebody could have a few of those characteristics, but also why design is so important in the mix. Yeah, so... Great teams are made up of people with different superpowers. So that, that's the bottom line. You know, the hustler is somebody who goes out there and never stops, never takes no for an answer. Like uh, some people have that in them. Other people literally do not. They will break down any door to get the sale, to get the deal done. You need somebody like that on your team. On your core team, you have to have somebody going out there making deals. It's not enough just to make something maybe if you just put it in the app store and you have just the right product at just the right time you can it can take off on its own through that mechanism but a lot of businesses you need to be engaging with people in the world and the ones that grow really big i mean you look at elon musk he's a hustler you look at jack ma he's a hustler you look at all these like bill gates they were out there making deals right they made these things happen so hustler is really important you have a lot of times uh, you need uh, that great technological engineer, the, the, the person who really has the insights. This is, they may not be a core inventor, but they have that DNA in them. And they are always, they really understand the technology and what it can do, and they can implement on that. And then another equally important 
is design. Like with in today's world, we know that you can build the best product in the world, but if people can't use it, it's not much good. Like if it's hard to use. So usability, the user experience uh, can totally make or break a product. So it's not just the technology. It's not just how good a salesperson you are. It's building that product that speaks to users. And I like to say uh, a lot of engineers will just, because they're not designers, they'll just think the more features they throw in, the better, right? You just load this product up with features and it's going to sell. Well, actually, what the biggest feature most people want is simplicity and being able to intuitively understand what they're using out of the box without any user's manual or other instructions. That's the number one feature. So adding other features often diminishes the core most important feature you have. This is why it's important to have a really good designer on your team. That's a huge insight. I mean, that's like Nest right there is a perfect example. Right. Nest, all these products, the iPhone, there were many smartphones before the iPhone that just kind of missed out. Steve Steve Jobs was such a brilliant designer, right? Steve Jobs wasn't a technologist, like he was a designer, like that was his passion and a promoter, right? These guys and a hustler, right? So he had multiple things, but one of his core superpower was really to design beautiful products. And Johnny Ives that works with him was also a great designer. He brought together that team. So when you're looking at a product, you got to think that the the experience the user has, and today it, it used to be that with business software or industrial software, you could get away with poor design, but the world is so competitive now. Design, you know, look at any product. It doesn't matter what it is. Design plays an enormous role. So if you don't have that designer on your team, you're missing out in a big way. Mm-hmm. Makes a ton of sense. What about what's the hot shot and what's the politician? What's their role? So like the politician, somebody needs to kind of bring together the team to communicate with the team. And some of these roles, like when I write in my book, uh, I talk not just about doing a startup, but the book is also for people who are executives in big corporations. Like how do you navigate like, how do you innovate inside a larger organization? And even a startup grows and it becomes a larger organization, becomes very political. So you need somebody within the organization to actually translate what you're doing in your group to the rest of the company, to the mission of the company. Because if it's not translated, your group will be starved, they'll be underfunded, or they'll be alienated. People will be jealous. So really good politicians know how to bring in other people. They know how to communicate and, and what they're doing within an organization. Get people behind them, like get, get supporters within that organization to push their project through. So you can still be a great hustler out there selling, but you also have to look, especially in larger organizations, inside your organization, what's happening. What, you know, in a startup at the beginning, they're really focused. You don't need a politician, but as the startup becomes bigger and maybe more fractured, you might need that. Or definitely if you're innovating inside a company like Microsoft or Google or any of these things, a lot of it's political. A hundred percent. And, you know, you, you highlight in your book, which I am deeply fascinated about is this project Aristotle that Google did to look at teams effectiveness and what made teams most effective. wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because to me, it seems more than anything that we as leaders, as founders, as entrepreneurs, we need to create an environment that makes people feel not only comfortable sharing ideas, but supports them in such a way where they're encouraged 
and they are they are embraced these ideas because all too often we see people push down and suppress ideas which does not create the type of environment where innovation happens speak a little bit about that and then also there's you you have this other idea which is like having like an innovation team or an innovation function to help teams maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well sure you know google did a study they wanted to they have thousands of teams in google it's a huge company they're very innovative but they're also a big organization so a lot of innovation, they, they started to look around and some of their teams were very successful and some weren't very successful. They were like complete failures. And they're like, why is this? You know, what are the correlations? What what the commonalities between the successful teams versus the unsuccessful ones? So their initial assumption was that if you put great people, like the best people possible, like we talked about these super superstars, if you put them all on one team, if you get the best designer, the best marketer, the, the best to engineer in Google and you put them on a team, that team will be a huge success. What they found out is that's not necessarily yeah. true. And they're like, wait a second, we put all the best people on this team. It should be rocketing past our other teams, but this other team is outperforming it and they don't even have the best people. Like these aren't the, the most brilliant salespeople, engineers and designers that we have and they're doing better. Right. Why? They start to try to figure this, this problem out. And what they discovered was fascinating. It's that it's not quality of people that determines the success of a team. Now, your people on your team still have to be high quality. Like if you have people that don't know their job, don't know what they're doing, sure, that sure, team sure. will not be a success. So they have to be at a certain level of quality. But they don't. But the problem is what's more important than quality is how the team works together the how they interact with one another. Now, what they found with that the teams that communicate the best, the teams where everybody is free to speak their mind, where they're not afraid that they'll be put down by the other team members, where they don't think somebody's going to stab them in the back, where they feel a part of the team and open to express all their ideas, those teams where they have that level, high level of trust between the team members outperformed, always outperformed everything else. You sometimes you get these teams with hot shots on them. You know, I am the best marketing person. You know, you don't know what you're doing. I am the best engineer. I'm the best salesperson. You get these people on a team and they end up competing with each other. They don't mm. trust each other. They undermine one another. They each try to get all the credit for the success. So they end up sabotaging their own efforts. And this is why some of the teams that were just made up of hot shots actually ended up underperforming because right. they ended up basically fighting each other. A lot of conflict. Right. Whereas the teams that didn't necessarily have the best people, they had good people, but not, not maybe the best, but they all kind of melded together. They trusted each other. They worked really hard. Those are the teams that ended up rocketing. They outperformed the teams with better people. So when you're doing a startup, it's not just getting the best people. It's getting the best people that you really trust, that you can really work with, that you can form a, uh, open communication with, because it's the best team that matters, not the individuals. It makes a ton of sense. And even if you look at sports, for example, a stacked sports team with all the best stats isn't necessarily going to be the best team thrive when there's communication, when there's synergy, when there's support, when there's trust. And all of these things help to create a collect, I mean, it's just the, the, the strength of numbers works 
when there is true collaboration and support. And it, and it just stands to reason that that is the result of their study, which to their credit, like the fact that they did that study. And now that we can leverage that and learn from that and now support like, Hey, this is why you should create teams that will work well together that will support one another. I mean, it's, it's just a huge insight. Yeah. That's why I tell people when you're doing a team, you might put together a team and it just might not work. All the people might be fine, but not fine together. That way, so you might just have to throw out that team or replace team members and keep trying, mixing it up until you get that right combination. It's mm. really important, not again, not to be fixed on like, oh, these are the best people, so this team's going to work. That's not the way it happens. And speaking of sports, it's so true in sports. You know, it's not like one hotshot player that makes the difference. It's, <laughs> right, right, you right. Know, it's how the, I, when I was a kid, I was in Little League Baseball, playing baseball, and we had the worst team ever. I mean, we literally were at the bottom of our Little League, the entire league, for Mm -hmm. two years in a row, like at the bottom. And then some magic happened in the third year because all of us had been playing two years. None of us got bumped up to the higher level, what they call the major, like because we were so bad, like none of us had great skills. But somehow the third year, we just all bonded, like we worked different people. We weren't still the jocks, the superstars, but we bonded in a way where we all really, really liked each other. We really trusted each other. We had a great time playing together and we not only made it to the playoffs, we won the championship. So we went from the bottom to the top with that. The power of teamwork. I love that. The other thing that fascinates me is just how wedded we get to thinking we understand our customers when in reality we don't. And we try to support our bias, our thoughts or with data, but it often ends up backfiring. You give some really interesting suggestions in terms of observing, being a fly on the wall, but I'm a huge believer in the power of feedback and understanding the customers and understanding not just what they want, but what they want our products to do for them. And you highlight that in the book. Can you talk a little bit about why that is so crucial and so vastly important for a startup, an entrepreneur, or any business for that matter, to really understand the customer? But then beyond that, how do you suggest they start that path? So, you know, I like to say entrepreneurship is so simple. Really, all you have to do to be successful as an entrepreneur in this world is make something that people really really want. It's that simple. Like if you do that, you will figure out how to make money. Like if somebody really, really wants something, there's money there. But it sounds so simple. And at the same time, it's so hard, right? To figure out what is that thing that people right now really, really want that you can give them. I believe in customer centric thinking when it comes to entrepreneurship, like really focusing not just on your vision, because like I said, it's not your vision that matters. It's what the customer, what's in their head that matters. What's ever in your head is fine. Like that's, but what's in their head is really where the goal is, right? Because that's where the want is, their need, what they need. So you got to get into their head. You got to burrow into their minds. And the more the entrepreneurs that do this, either intuitively, they don't do it. They just, that's how they are. They naturally burrow into other people's minds or they do it methodically. They actually lay out a series of steps that they have to take. And this is some of what I like to teach is you cannot expect your customer to design your product. 
That's not what they can teach you, right? Henry Ford had a famous saying, if you know, you asked the customer what they wanted when he was venting the Model T, they would have told him faster horses because horses <laughs> are all they knew, right? That's right, that's would, right? But what you really need to understand is they were what they were telling him. They, they weren't, he couldn't design his product because they would have just tried to design a faster horse. What they were telling him is, I want to get from point A to point B faster, right? Yeah. That's what I want. I want a convenient, I want a convenient way to get from point A to point B faster. So, then he has to go out and design the Model T, which is the way a mass market car they can afford that will get them from point A to point B much faster and hopefully more comfortably than a horse or a horse and buggy. That is your job. A great entrepreneur will spend a lot of time with their customer, not asking them to like, what? how would you redesign this? How would you change this? A lot of time just trying to understand the deeper level of the needs of the customer. And then it's the job of the startup, the innovation team, to actually take those needs and, tr and look at the technologies available and all the tools they have and actually start to design something that accomplishes, th that accomplishes what that customer needs. You can do this many different ways. Like Kickstarter, for example, is a great way. You can create a video. You don't have to build the whole product. You can put it up there. You can start to see how people react to your product. Another way, which is really important, is just spending time with your customer. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs succeed because they are the customer. Like they figure out something that they really need in their life and they build it and for themselves. And then it turns out that everybody else needs it. Like YouTube, right? They mm -hmm. were originally an online dating site, which never went anywhere. <laughs> we don't even remember that. But what they figured out is they wanted to share videos between themselves and their friends, the easiest way was to upload the video onto a website and just share the link. That was their great insight. But it came because they were the customer. They needed that. They wanted that. And then they saw the potential of what that could do if they got it out to a lot of people. So to be a great innovator, you can, one way is to build products that you know you need. Because if you need it and there are enough people like you in the world that need it, then you have a market. Another way, you don't have to do that. You is to actually go into the world and start to understand the problems that customers are facing, the things that are really difficult for them, the things that cause them headaches, the things that cause them anxiety, the things that they wish for, the needs that they have for their business to grow revenue, to grow this, to grow that, and then start to see where the latest technologies that are emerging can actually impact that, can actually fundamentally change it in a way that isn't incremental. Because if you're only doing incremental changes, you've already lost the game. Like there are already people out there doing those. All the existing companies are doing it. The wave has passed. Yeah. You need to use new technology that can take quantum leap forward and offer them a solution that's so much better than what they're doing today that they will overcome the inertia, which all of us face in life, right? To switch to your product. Mm. Yeah. It's such a powerful insight because often we are think we have this new thing, but it's not going to get the result that we need for matter to the customer because we are perhaps too late to the game and somebody else has invented something that is that quantum leap. And if we're competing with other companies that are doing the quantum leap, we won't survive. You talk about getting into the mind of the customer, understanding their needs. 
and understanding their decision-making process, which I really love this too. It's like, what will make them decide to, to want to, to use this product because it's going to provide them the answer, the solution that they're looking for. They won't help you create the product, but they will, if you are closely looking at them or if you understand them, they will help you understand what is the end result? What do they actually need? Some other suggestions that you have to help expose this is to do targeted prototypes or to do MVPs. I mean, even Amazon. Amazon disrupts itself all the time. Why? Not because they want to have lower margin or because they're, they just want to give more money away. No, because they know if they don't do that, they will be, uh, there will be other companies that will come and compete. And even Jeff Bezos says Amazon won't be around forever. So talk a little bit about targeted prototypes and the various types, because we hear about MVP all the time. So what are the types of MVPs that people could do where there's low investment, but you could start to test and see what the the the, the market is, is wanting? So a lot of people, when they think of an MVP, they think I have to get an engineer I have to get a team together. I have to build, actually have to build an early version of the product to get into people's hands. And I say, that is great, but you should, your first, that's too complex for your first MVP. In fact, what you need to do, the great entrepreneurs, the great innovators actually push the risk as far forward as possible. Meaning on day one, the first day you have your idea, is there something you can get to your customer that day by yourself without a team or anybody to give you some insight into whether they really need it. Like your first MVP could literally be a PowerPoint presentation, you know, that you make that shows what your product will become. And then you go out to customers and I'm thinking of designing this and this is when you describe it to them and try to make it as real as possible and see their feedback. And they say, Eh, that's nice. You're dead, right? If they're, not, <laughs> they're not salivating in the mouth. They're not going, oh my God, that is like incredible. Can I have this? Can I fund you? You know, then you don't have something probably. And then, you know, after the first MVP, you can go out and actually you can start make a video, right? Or make a model, or just a model, no technology involved and try to get something in their hands. If it's a robotic piece or another piece, you know, can you build some simul you know, simulation of it doesn't have to work at all and just put it in their hands to make it a little more real. Every step of the way, you shouldn't do one customer approach is what I'm saying, is you should start on day one with your idea, going out to customers and then just keep every, literally every week, if you can, Keep improving on adding a little more to it and going back to customers. Don't wait till it's perfect, right? This is what entrepreneurs do. They build and build and build and build and build for months, go out to customer, find out they were completely on the wrong trail. From day one, if they had gotten that feedback, they would have figured out the customer doesn't really need this. Then you need to listen to the customer. You need to just use your idea as a point, opening point of discussion where they can start to tell you what they're what they really need not what you think they need that's but right what their problems are what their frustrations are you know and you may find that you know if it very early on that there's something else out there that is much more valuable to them that they aren't getting and it's not what you're showing them and mm -hmm. that it that can totally change the direction you go and make all the difference between wasting months and months or even years on a product that really will, will be marginal at best to something that becomes the next big explosion. Yeah. And you, when you start working with an entrepreneur or a founder, you ask the two questions. I know you ask, 
who is your customer? And then you ask, how much time do you spend with them? So those are both really important questions. And to go beyond that, highlighting and, and reframing what we've already talked about, it's like, don't ask them what, don't ask your customer what they want. Ask them what you want your product to do for them. Yes. Why do founders struggle with this? Do they not know? Did, I mean, what, what are you seeing as the biggest? Is it they're, they're too wedded to what they think? Like, why, why do they struggle? And then what is the unlock that you have found to be most helpful to get them to, to start to, to do the right thing? Yeah. So a lot of entrepreneurs think I've got to start with a great idea. I shouldn't even start my company. My shouldn't even launch my startup until I have that brilliant idea till right. I have like that Elon Musk idea, like that, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to go to Mars or whatever sure, crazy sure. idea that is. But most great companies don't start that way. Most great companies actually start out with the wrong idea, first of all, and then discover the right idea through the process. So like, we all look at Microsoft and its big success. You have to remember, Microsoft had a first iteration uh, that failed, that totally failed. Then even Microsoft's success wasn't apparent at the beginning. Uh, they were, they were, it was IBM. They wanted Microsoft to build this thing. They were just basically building something for IBM. But then they started to see the potential along the way. And as soon as they saw it, they ran with it. An entrepreneur, what you need to do is first of all, you don't need an idea to begin your startup. You just say, I don't even have an idea, but I have an area that I'm interested in. So I'm interested in IoT, let's say, uh, in, you know, in nursing homes, right? Now, I don't know how this IoT in nursing homes, I have a number of ideas of how I can build devices that will make nursing homes safer and better for people, but I'm going to go into these nursing homes and I'm going to figure it out. That's a much better way than waiting till you have the perfect idea for nursing homes. Because honestly, you probably don't even when you think you do, right? But once you get into those nursing homes and start like figuring how, how they actually work, well, then maybe your idea will become apparent. Food industry, like I want to build something that will make the back end of restaurants work really smoothly, like software or hardware, or whatever it is. Well, don't try to just think of that idea out of thin air. Go into the back end of restaurants, you know, volunteer to work there as an assistant, you know, dishwasher, whatever, just to see people, you know, spend time there in the, you know, I call it roll up your sleeves and get dirty. And then the ideas will start to come to you and then they will be real ideas because they will be rooted in the reality of the situation. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to be willing to shut up and observe, just be quiet and see what's going on and immerse yourself. And maybe you're not constantly quiet because maybe you ask some questions, but I think there is some value in, in just being present without put your ideas into their mind. And I think you just got to immerse yourself in the environment. Oh, I always say, don't fall in love with your idea, because if you fall in love with your idea, you're trying to convert everybody to believe in it. And yeah. You know, if your customer isn't, doesn't, if your customer, what you need is not to love your idea. Uh, don't love your idea, right? Your job is actually to kill your idea, right? If Because just because you think it's great doesn't mean the world thinks it's great. So you, you want to figure out as quickly as possible if you can destroy your own idea. What you mm-hmm. need to love is not your idea. You need to love your customer. And mm-hmm. what you need is to find the idea your customer loves. <laughs> so if you're if you love your customer, you will give that you will figure out what you can give them to make them fall in love, right? Right. And, and if you can make that magic work, that's your company. 
Right. And fall in love with what is the outcome? What is the thing, the desired result? It's like the car analogy and thinking about Ford, right? Like they wanted to get from point A to point B faster and more comfort and more efficiently, any number of things. Like that is what you fall in love with. And then the way in which you get there will happen through iteration, testing, trying different things, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work. When I look at one thing that you talk about when we look at innovators, for example, Peter Thiel, he says, it's the freaks that are the innovators, right? And so he asked this question. It's like, what is this? What is the view that you have that most people disagree with you on? What are some of the common traits that you see that innovative or visionary type people have? What, what are the factors or, or commonalities that you see most frequently? So- There are a lot of them, but one that I think is really important is that true innovators don't stop at the surface level. They go deep. Like they want to know everything about what they're doing. They want to become, they will read and, and digest everything about that industry. So if you look at like Elon Musk, right? Like when he got into SpaceX. He, I was just thinking about him. He read all these books on rocket propulsion and stuff. He didn't know all that stuff, right? But he just like consumed it. like. And, and you look at Bill Gates. He did the same thing. Steve Jobs. It doesn't matter who they are. These, uh, the people who, so most entrepreneurs will, will come up with a great idea and then they'll stop. You know, they'll stop. But, mm-hmm. but and, and honestly, you, if you're going to break through, you can't stop where everybody else stops, right? Because they will, uh, first of all, even if it's ahead of them, they will catch up to you and pass you up. You have to be the type of person that goes completely, uh, sucks in, go deeper and deeper and deeper than anybody else in your space, in all your competitors. So I tell entrepreneurs, know everything about your business, everything you can figure out, like all the minutiae. A lot of the great innovations come out of minutia, small things that people overlook that end up having big impacts. And also spend a lot of time looking at what your competitors are doing, know exactly what they're doing, know why they're, what they're doing works and why what they're doing doesn't work. Like you have to understand, a lot of people just ignore the competition. You know, they'll come to me and I'll say, how's the competition? They'll try to brush over. Oh, we're totally different than them. But they, <laughs> you know, they all say that, right? We're not like, and they'll have this this uh, this quad chart, you know, where they have different sectors, and they'll say we're over here, and all of them are over here, you know, we're totally different. And then, but it, it doesn't convince me. Like the ones who convince me are the ones who will go so deep into what they're doing. They'll, they'll be like, you know, we're doing this and that and that, and they they really understand at a very deep level what their business is, why people need it, what all the moving parts in it. And those are the entrepreneurs that end up breaking through. You mentioned Elon, and I don't often talk about this, but I had the unique privilege of being on conference calls with Elon because I had a director level role when he does not have many directors in his organization. I was one layer removed from him on the hierarchy at one point. So I was close to the sun, as they say. What stood out, this is end of quarter, we had some conference calls where he was working with delivery. And as anyone who knows Tesla knows, end of quarter, it's like guns blazing. We got to get these cars out, like all hands on deck. But what really impressed me, and we could have a whole conversation about his leadership style, which there's, there's pros and cons. But what really impressed me was his questions. 
and the amount of questions that he asked and the detail that he wanted to get to. Now, you better have a good answer for those questions, by the way, because if you gave the wrong answer, and I've heard it a few times where the wrong answer was given, but he really wanted to know. He genuinely wanted to understand. And I think be curious, like as an entrepreneur, be curious, have an insatiable appetite for curiosity of everything in your business. That's exactly what I was saying. He wasn't just a visionary, right? He didn't just have a big vision. He wanted to know every detail about that business that he could suck up, right? Even the minutia of the business that you think, why does he even care about this? Because it all helped inform his understanding of the big picture. So without the details, he didn't have the big picture. And He's kind of dictatorial and things like that. We all know, you know, the stories about Elon Musk. Those are his weaknesses. His great strengths was that he didn't think he knew everything. He was open to like having oh, you yeah. tell him, right? So if, Very he, much. if he thought he knew everything and he, he managed the way he does, he would have failed because he would have been dictatorial and he would have thought he, know, he knew everything. So he wouldn't have even asked you. The fact that he was asking you questions every time you met was the sign of a great, what I think of is truly a great visionary, right? Because a great visionary isn't having the vision, it's having that appetite, that curiosity, that the putting together of all the pieces to make that vision real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and curious what your thoughts are as somebody that, you're the captain, right? You're a Captain Hoffman of, of, of Silicon Valley and there's a max exodus happening right now as a result of Elon and others. I think 39 companies are, are going to just Austin, for example, But the beautiful thing is that the spirit of Silicon Valley lives in all these different places, in Korea and China and Austin and Los Angeles, you name it, right? I live in Silicon Beach. They call where I live is Silicon Beach, okay? So the question that I have for you is, what does the future look like? What does the landscape look like when you think about, you know, you've been at the epicenter of it all. But to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's the spirit lives on and the and the meaning and the innovation lives on beyond the geographic footprint of specifically this part of California. Talk a little bit about where we're going in the future and if you agree with that sentiment and, and why that sentiment's true if you do agree with it. So Silicon Valley was a unique historical event, right? At the, we had a, the right people coming to the right place at the right time and interacting with one another and spawning all these amazing companies. What we're seeing now is the world is becoming more and more innovative globally. Like so, all the innovation you know isn't hap- isn't restricted to Silicon Valley. We see massive innovation in Silicon Beach down in Southern California. We see it in New York and you know the whole New York ecosystem. We see it in Austin and Seattle, of course. And then we also are seeing it overseas. So like I'll go to Shenzhen, I'll go to Seoul, I'll go to Europe and the different centers in Europe and. All of these are becoming innovation hubs in their own right. And because of the internet, we aren't restricted even to now working in our, you know, in any location. Like I am literally right now leaving Silicon Valley too. So (laughs) I'm part of that mass exodus. So I am becoming a digital nomad. I'm literally selling everything, all my furniture, everything, giving up my place, everything. And I am going to travel 100% of the time. So yes, uh, because it's kind of a dream of mine. So I will go wherever the winds blow me. And my goal is to work with like 
great people like you, like you're, you're really brilliant. You've done great stuff and interact with great people and feed off them and, and, and share ideas and, and do make startup investments and do all these things on where from innovation hub to innovation hub to innovation hub. And that is, I actually think is the future. We're going to have more and more dispersed people moving about much more in the future. The real innovators won't be locked down to a geographic location. That will be uh, something we will see less of, like it's still, people will be hopping from innovation hub to innovation hub. Mm, makes sense. It's exciting times. And I think hopefully what this does is it lightens the load, so to speak, from a, a climate change perspective in some of our major cities. If people start to spread out for me living in Los Angeles, I hope it doesn't hurt my property value too much, but, but that's a whole nother topic and conversation. I don't, just I don't think you have to worry about that. <laughs> Yeah, I know. LA is LA's pretty good. I mean, uh, people still want to come here. This is my last question. You just you just touched on it and it was my it's perfect lead in. Who are the type of people that you love to work with from a founder perspective that you're brilliant and thank you for the compliment. I'll take it and thank you for that. But you are my friend brilliant. Your time, you only have so many, we only have our bank account of time is limited. So you got to, you got to weigh how much time you spend with people and all that. Who are the types of people and innovators and entrepreneurs that you are most excited to work with? I love people who are passionate about what they do. So like with you, your passion comes through, right? You're excited. It's so easy to talk to you. Like I get excited, right? I feed off that positive energy. So Mm -hmm. honestly, I want people that produce in me, the feeling that I hope to produce in them, right? Which is a a passion for life, a love of what you're doing, a desire to be curious, a desire to share, exchange, be open, make each other better, like improve, help each other. That those are the people I want. They don't necessarily have to be the most brilliant people in the world. Like I said, you know, the teams don't have to be the superstars. Like you can meet these superstars. Maybe they're great alone and maybe, you know, uh, but maybe they aren't what you in life, I want to work with people where we can be great together, right? Where we can help one another, where we can do things, where we can exchange ideas, information, relationships, all these things. That is, uh, mm. those are the people I seek out. I am right there with you 100%. That to me, because you can't, that's something that you either have or you don't. I mean, yeah, you could start to build more passion, but if you have the passion and the excitement and the enthusiasm for what you do, the rest, can be filled in. The rest can be taught. The rest can be downloaded. The rest can be learned. But you got to have that as a starting off point. So if you are that type of person, go to founderspace.com. Check out all the amazing content that's there. You'll also be able to see there's courses, there's ways for you to get to uh, into your accelerator program and your incubator program. As soon as COVID is over, invite me somewhere interesting and I'll come. <laughs> there you go. So what? Yeah, t- talk a little bit about what else is there. Before you do, I just want to say for your books, I highly, highly, highly suggest everyone pick up Make Elephants Fly, The Process of Radical Innovation. He also has his book, Surviving a Startup. Practical Strategies for Starting a Business, Overcoming Obstacles, and Coming Out on Top. And then his new, uh, or or I should say that's his new book, but his next book is The Five Forces That Change Everything, How Technology is Shaping Our Future. I'm already guaranteeing (laughs) you we're going to have more conversations, as long as you're good with it, about those books and- then about other things, because I mean, this is just the beginning in my, hopefully for me, in my mind. Uh, but man, I can't wait to read your other books. I haven't yet, but I will. But let's talk a, bit about, a little bit about Founders Space for those that are 
deeply curious like I am, and I'm already like, okay, I'm I'm gonna go there. I've already been there, but I'm gonna go there myself and see what how I can get involved. But like, talk a little bit about that. So Founder Space has been a traditional a startup incubator and accelerator until COVID came around. We had our space open here in the city, San Francisco, and we spread globally. So we have over 50 partners now in 22 countries. Some of those spaces we run ourselves, they're founder spaces. Others are other. I personally don't care if it's a founder space or if it's a Joe incubator, right? Off in Sweden or South Africa or you know China. What I care about is our collaboration, what we can do together for entrepreneurs. So our goal has always been to disseminate as much information and inspire and help entrepreneurs succeed. Get to help them with their funding, help them with their ideas, help them with who who they might need to meet to get to the next level. That is what Founder Space is about. Now that I'm going virtual nomad, we are kind of taking this whole thing virtual, like it's all online. You can go there, you can contact us. Like if you live in a city, I don't care where you are, you could be in Moscow, Russia or wherever, you can invite me. I'd be happy to come and like engage with you and the people. If you're doing good work, if you're here to really help people and make great products out there that make the world a better place, then I w- would love to collaborate with you. Yes, the the invitation is is heard loud and clear. And thank you for that. I looked for this and I couldn't find it. I maybe just didn't look in the right place. Captain, where where did this come from? Where did ah. Captain, where did the Captain come from? So I originally. Captain Hoff, which is my nickname, was my gamer handle because I'm a big gamer. And I, in my early days, I designed a lot of games. Sure. <laughs> like, a gazillionaire. Yeah, yeah, a gazillionaire and all these other games out there that are uh, still going. And um, so I was a gamer. And then uh, in, I just used that nickname. And then people started to call me Captain Hoff. And it, it seemed perfect for Founder Space because I'm sort of the captain of the team. I'm not their boss. Like I'm not the CEO. I'm like, right, it's right, a team right. effort, right? And we're a team. And I stress that really important, like in my books, right? How we collaborate. So I am the captain of the team. I'm your coach. I love it. Well, Captain Hoff, I'm truly honored. I'm humbled and I'm grateful. This has been a wonderful conversation and I can't thank you enough for your time. And I look forward to learning more from you and getting to know you better in the future. Thank you for being on Inside Out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember... Your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.